Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway. I'm a vice president at the Aspen Institute and executive director of the Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. And it is my pleasure to welcome you today for a book talk with uh, Saket Sony, author of The Great Escape, a true story of forced labor and immigrant dreams in America. There's the book. Um, uh, I'll hold it up again later. Uh, this conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series in which we talk about the changing landscape of economic opportunity across the country, the implications for individuals, families, and communities, and ideas for change. Uh, I want to thank the Prudential Financial, Walmart.org, the Cerdner Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, and Bloomberg for their support of our Opportunity in America discussion series. Uh, thanks to everybody for joining today. If this is your first time uh, joining us for one of these conversations, we've done quite a few conversations and you can find all of them on our website at as.pmpn slash EOP events. Uh, I am thrilled about today's conversation with Saket uh, about his book, which is a fabulous story. Again, here it is, the book, go buy it, go read it. Um, it's a great read. Um, it really is a great read, I have to say. So a lot of people send me books, a lot, and, and I love getting people's books, and they're good books, right? And, you know, but nonfiction books aren't always page turners, and this one really is. Uh, so Socket says, read the first hundred pages or so, and then maybe we'll talk about it. I couldn't put it down, read the whole thing. So uh, really highly recommend this as both a fun book, but also it's it's a really powerful book. Uh, powerful story um, and it really makes you think. Um, and discussing this book is really a perfect follow-on for a recent event we had on building a human rights economy as the book really illustrates so well how um, the ways in which economic incentives kind of imperil human rights. And the story illustrates the brokenness of our immigration system um, and, and various laws that regulate our labor market and, and the human consequences when working people have no power and no legal protections. Um, and it is a wonderfully human story. It lets us see sort of all the variations and contradictions in human behavior. It's a nuanced tale of the risks and opportunities people face when they're trying to um, have agency over their situation and, and trying to improve that situation through collective action. Um, and I really, Socket, I really appreciated that this book doesn't have kind of a specific policy agenda that it, it kind of concludes with, but it more kind of, um, although you may have very well have a policy agenda and we can talk about that, but it really kind of seems to make the case for moral reasoning and centering that and how we think about organizing our economic lives. So, so thank you for the book and thank you for joining us today. And we're gonna start talking in just a second, but before we start, I have to do the quick technology review. So let me start with uh, just noting that closed captions are available for this discussion. And if you would like to use those, please click the CC button at the bottom of your screen. Um, all attendees are muted, uh, but we are recording this um, and we will share this email after the, uh, share the event by email after uh, we're done here, and we'll also post it to our website. We welcome your questions. Please do put questions in the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. We'll get to as many as we can today. Uh, you can also upload questions if you like, so, uh, so please use that Q&A box. We know also that we have uh, many people in our audience who are expert on a variety of issues. So please also share your thoughts, ideas, resources in the chat function. We'd love to, to hear what you're thinking and, and working on. 
Um, we always appreciate your feedback. We'll have a short feedback survey at the end of this that will pop up for you. If you can take a moment to uh, fill that out, we really appreciate it. We're always trying to get better. Um, you can also send us an email at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Um, and if you have any uh, technical issues, you can send an email there as well or put a note in the, in the chat feature. Um, okay, I think that's enough for technology. And now let me just say a, a couple words about uh, Saket Soni. Uh, he is a labor organizer and human rights strategist. Uh, I met Saket, I tend to round now, I'll just say over a decade ago, um, uh, when he was leading the New Orleans Worker Center for Racial Justice. Uh, he's now founder and director of Resilience Force, a national initiative to transform America's response to national disasters by strengthening and securing America's resilience workforce. Um, he's also an Aspen Institute Job Quality Fellow. Uh, one of my favorite titles that I've heard applied to you is the Poet Laureate of Labor Organizers. So, um, so many things about you. I don't know how you find time to do all the things that you do, uh, but thank you for finding time to join us today to talk about this book. Um, and just to kind of jump in, um, you know, one of the things that really struck me about this book is a great story. It's a fascinating story. It's also really kind of a memoir for you. I mean, this is the, you are in the story, right? And 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 I just, uh, can't imagine that these, some of the, the people and events you write about haven't been sort of, you know, really had a powerful influence on, on your life. Um, and so I often ask authors why they wrote a book. Um, for you, I feel like, how did you not you know, how'd you keep it in? It seems like a book that is dying to get out, but also um, maybe if you could just say a little bit about the process of writing this book and and why now? Why why was now the right time for you to write the book and why is now the right time for the world to hear the story? Well, thank you for having me on, Maureen, and thanks all of you for, um, for tuning in. Um, yeah, what a great question. You know, um, I wasn't supposed to be in this book, uh, not in the way that I am. Um, the Great Escape is supposed to be a nonfiction thriller. It's written to captivate, uh, written, uh, you know, modeled after um, noir fiction and detective stories uh, and heist films uh, and even great TV. So the idea was to really make a worker organizing story as compelling as, you know, um, a great heist film. Uh, you all should be the judge of whether I succeeded, but that was the idea. Um, and originally, you know, I thought I could, in essence, report on a campaign that I ran as an organizer. Um, the book tells the story of one of the largest human trafficking schemes in modern US history. Um, and starts with a group of workers who I stumbled onto after I received an anonymous phone call. And in the writing of the book, uh, I thought I could tell that story and likely be a character in the book. Um, it turned out, though, as I got deeper into it, that um, firstly, you know, the book takes you to certain worlds that readers need a tour guide for. And so I realized that I had to be more of a tour guide. Um, I had to be in the book more. Um, the world of post-Katrina New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, when um, after the Katrina flooding, 
the Gulf Coast turned into the world's largest construction site. And workers came from not just all over the US, but all over the world. And they stood under a statue, a 60 foot monument to Robert E. Lee in New Orleans. And um, that place became the hiring hub where contractors would bring their buses. You know, these, this world of post-Katrina um, uh, rebuilding is a world I deeply knew. The world of India, where these protagonists come from, um, unlikely workers in Mississippi. Um, you know, I was the tour guide to that world. And um, as I started playing that role more and more in the writing, um, it, it suddenly seemed pretty clear that um, in order to be in the book, I had to be a character. I had to be an imperfect character. Uh, you know, for the book to be a good book, you have to have characters that are complex and imperfect and struggle with things. Um, and, and I was already sort of depicting the immigrant workers as complex and imperfect. And I decided to embrace that as well. So my parents found their way in the book. My sister um, at the center of the book is my own personal immigration crisis and love story that parallels the immigration crisis and love story of the men. Um, so I ended up dragging a lot of people who love me and uh, who uh, who I begged to let me write about them. Uh, and, and, and to my great luck, they agreed um, and, and winced as they read the manuscript uh, at the end. But, but it did turn out to be a lot more of a memoir than I expected to write. Yeah, that's funny. You mentioned your parents and your and your mom. I I've heard you talk about how your parents are, you know, sort of let you come to the U.S. to study theater and <laughs> that. Yeah. But I also was thinking of your parents and reading that opening story. Reading the opening story, I thought, do your parents know this is what you do for a living? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I don't think they did it quite at the time. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but anyway, but set the, set the scene a little bit for us for how this how this book starts. I mean, you are an organizer. You're, you know, in your 20s, you're, you're doing some rather dangerous things, it turns out. But also, um, you know, just just talk a little bit about that. Like what was what was going on and, and why was the call that you got from why was it surprising the, the call that you got that kind of started this book? Well, you know, uh, I was a labor organizer. Uh, in my late 20s um, in post-Katrina New Orleans. And when you're an organizer, you're basically solving workers' problems. That's what you do. And on the first page of this book, um, it's uh, late at night on my 29th birthday. And uh, I'm at work in an unheated car trying to solve a pretty big problem for a worker. Um, I'm trying to uh, ransom, I'm trying to help a Honduran day laborer ransom his kidnapped nephew. Uh, and in the middle of this operation, my parents call me um, and um, it's my birthday. My, my parents are calling me to wish me happy birthday. They've called successive times um, and I've kept sending them to voicemail uh, and I do it again and I apologize silently. Um, and then the stakeout we've been waiting for happens. We succeed. 
in ransoming this kidnapped uh, nephew uh, of this uh, of this worker. Um, you know, that was about 1230 at night. I went home after that and uh, collapsed into my couch, poured myself uh, a drink, a birthday indulgence and um, and and was drifting off to sleep when I got another phone call. Um, this was a man calling from the 228 area code. That is uh, the Mississippi Gulf Coast where Katrina made landfall. And we were still in the aftermath of Katrina. This was in 2006 and vast stretches of the Gulf Coast were in disrepair. So I picked up, I figured it was a worker in trouble. I picked up and the man was, um, the, the, this man insisted on being anonymous. He was really mysterious, but I could tell from the way he said my name that he was from India. I'm from India and he said my name exactly the way my family says it. Um, and I wondered what is an Indian man doing in the ruins of the Mississippi Gulf Coast after Katrina? I was used to other kinds of workers calling me, but how had this guy gotten here all the way from India? It turned out he was one of 500 workers brought over under false promises from India to the Mississippi Gulf Coast to work for an oil rig builder. Um, and so that call set me on the trail of um, what wound up becoming uh, one of the greatest, one of the largest labor trafficking, you know, human trafficking schemes uh, in modern U.S. history. Um, I um, wound up finding the workers in a labor camp um, and then spent, you know, the next uh, four years trying to free them uh, and get them justice um, in the United States. Overall, I spent about 10 years living the events of the book and about four years writing it. Um, and it all started with that mysterious midnight phone call. Yeah, that's so amazing. Um, you know, and one of the things that I really love is the way that you, um, you know, how you humanize um, these men and 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 tell their stories and their contrasting stories and and really bring them to life. And it just really strikes me that um, you know I was actually just um, traveling out to Arizona recently and happened to be a picture. Um, you know, is sort of trying anti-human trafficking, right? And trying to give somebody who might be the victim of a of human trafficking a place to call. And sort of the the picture that you get is that they're expecting this to be a young woman, maybe who doesn't speak English, maybe who speaks Spanish. And, you know, and I think that is kind of um, what we might think, but this is not who you're, so who you're talking about. So I, I really appreciate this that sort of the, the story challenges our notion of who a human trafficking victim is or could be, but also then you, 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 you know, humanize them to such a great extent, you really bring them very much to life. So um, just, can you just talk about that a little bit and, and, and maybe what surprised you about some of their stories and, and maybe tell us about one of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the, idea was, you know, to start their stories, even though the book starts um, in the United States that night in New Orleans, um, I wanted to jump back and start the stories in India. And uh, the way in uh, is, is really 
the love stories of these men back in India, um, their love for, uh, you know, high school sweethearts or brides to be uh, or their parents, um, because that's really what propelled them out of India. That's what made them into migrant workers. And that's what made them, um, you know, uh, take the deal that traffickers were uh, were promising them. So, um, you know, one story is um, one one protagonist of the book is a man named Ebi Raju. So Ebi uh, is a migrant worker who returns from Bahrain, uh, and right as his parents are picking up picking him up from the airport, um, uh, uh, his mother starts to drag him into an arranged marriage. Now Ebi doesn't want it. Ebi doesn't want an arranged marriage. He's a young, modern kid. He, he, he's in his 20s. You know, he wants to live his life. But his mother drags him into it. And, um, and he resists until he accidentally talks to his bride-to-be on the phone. And he just falls in love with her voice. Just like that, you know. <laughs> and then um, when um, he's promised by these recruiters a green card and good jobs... Um, he wants that. He wants to be able to afford uh, retirement for his parents. He wants to be able to give a better life to um, his new bride. Uh, and she gets pregnant and he wants his unborn son to have a better life than he did. And, you know, uh, the way to do that is to come to America. Now, the catch is that this will all cost $20,000. Um, that's what the recruiters are asking for. But Ebi sees not just a good deal, but an extraordinary opportunity. He's a lifelong migrant worker. And as he puts it, when you're a migrant worker, you love the ones you leave to let them live. That's Those are the rules. Um, it's this impossible choice that people like him face between living with people you love or providing for them. And the choice is always to leave and send money and provide. Um, $20,000 is a lot of money, but he gets his father to sell their home. He takes high interest loans, you know, all because of love. Um, another young man in the book is uh, Hemant Kutten. Hemant is the dashing, very handsome, Bollywood-worthy son of a New Delhi cop. Um, he is in love with his high school sweetheart and wants to marry her. He asks for he asks her father for her hand in marriage, um, but his girlfriend and her father are that family is several rungs higher than them, than Heyman's family in uh, Indian social status. So her father says, "You're going to marry my daughter? I don't think so. Go not right now at least. Go become somebody." He says, um, and then we'll talk. Go become somebody. Well, Heyman takes that on as a challenge. He's going to become somebody, not a lawyer, not an engineer. He's going to do one better and become an American. And so he goes and convinces his father to sell the house, empty his retirement, take on loans, and raise $20,000. Of course, when these men get to, when they and the other 500 get to the United States, they find out that all the promises are false. There were never any green cards. They're working round-the-clock shifts surrounded by barbed wire fences, packed 24 to a room in a, in a trailer. Um, 
inside a labor camp on company property, and the promises are, you know, are, are all fo- false. And so, so this is sort of the um, the way into that was these human stories, these love stories, uh, and the hope was um, that rather than being victims of trafficking from India, um, they're simply people in their twenties in love and who love their families, uh, which is something we can all relate to. Yeah, no, that's so great. And, you know, and they don't actually find out like as soon as they get there. Right. I mean, I think you really get a sense of sort of the story that they're told and why they might believe it versus, you know, as a reader who may be conversant with us immigration policy, knowing that the story could never be true. Um, you know, you really, but it it takes a while, I think, for them, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have the language skills, they don't have the connections mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. right, to really know how that, how much they've been lied to for a while. Um, yeah, yeah, that's and, exactly and, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, and, and I think, you know, and also, like, just the way that you bring them to life, I, I loved how you described before, you know, you sort of have to have these full complex characters, right? And, and, and you do that with, with the, the victims of human trafficking here, but you also do it with the perpetrators. Um, and I, I thought it was really interesting how you sort of challenge, it, it kind of challenges who you think of, uh, you know, might be the kind of person who would do this, who would lie to people so that they could, you know, make money, take their $20,000 and not deliver. And, you know, so um, like that, that was just really fascinating to me. Could you talk about that a little bit? I, I particularly Malvern was a, was an interesting, maybe it was because I was also in the Peace Corps, but I mean, he was really an interesting character to me. Um, yeah, yeah he's, he's fascinating. I mean, he's one of the most interesting figures I have ever come across in all my years of organizing. Um, this is Malvern, the man at the center of the book and the person um, who really put together the scheme that a federal jury would years later recognize as human trafficking and forced labor. Um, But instead of being a mustache twirling villain, which is what one would expect, Malvern is actually one of us. He's an immigration attorney. Not only that, He's an idealist. He's born in um, Louisiana, lives in New Orleans, has a successful immigration practice. Um, and it, it really is a deep part of his DNA to care about immigrants. He is, um, he tells the story, he told me the story of how when he was a child, his parents as good Catholics took in a pair of teenage Cuban refugees. And the arrival of those refugees in his home, I mean, they taught him how to play baseball. They, you know, talked around the dinner table. Uh, Malvern looked up to them, literally and figuratively. He was young, a little kid. They were in their teens. And, um, you know, that uh, turned him into a defender of strivers. He, He became the immigrant's best friend. And he started an immigration law practice, Um, you know, all his life, he dedicated himself to helping people like those refugee kids he had met come to America and find their foothold um, in the United States. But then Hurricane Katrina made landfall and it um, created a deep crisis for Malvern. Personally and financially, uh, it created a deep crisis for his family. 
um, he became a kind of refugee himself. And, um, you know, I think that was when to get out of that deep crisis, um, he accessed his powers and knowledge of the immigration system. Um, and, you know, partnered with this Mississippi cop and an Indian labor recruiter to create a scheme to provide workers to a large Mississippi oil rig builder. So, you know, Malvern and the other recruiters made millions. The company got the most skilled workers in the world for a fraction of the cost of American workers. Um, but the workers found themselves, um, you know, in, um, in a situation that was recognized later to be human trafficking. Um, Malvern's story um, has, without giving it away, has a very fascinating coda at the end. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and that's the other thing that he offered uh, as, as, a, as a real life character. He offered a chance to show a person going through um, you know, a, a kind of idealistic beginning, a deep crisis in the middle, uh, and then a, a really interesting landing point uh, after the crisis at the end. Yeah, so I appreciate you not giving too much away because we don't want to give too much away. We can't, you know, <laughs> can't have too many spoilers in here. <laughs> but um, I did notice we have one uh, question. Um, can you just say what year it was when the story started? I, I noticed somebody asked that in the... Oh, yes, yes. Um, well, just to, um, just to remind people, Hurricane Katrina made landfall in um, August, at, right at the end of August 2005. Um, the story starts a few months later, um, about a year later when the workers arrived, November 2006 uh, is when the uh, workers, when the first anonymous worker calls me and, and goes from there all, all the way up until the present day. Yeah, great. So, um, so you started talking about the conditions at the, at the man camp, as I believe the company called it. Um, and, you know, how, can you, comment on a couple of things like how is that different than the kinds of issues you were finding with most workers who were coming to you um you know for help with various things at, at work um and and when did you start to think like this is not just ordinary sort of malfeasance like this is rising to a, a new level like talk about that a little bit yeah well um Almost immediately, it was pretty clear to me that the workers were uh, in some form of captivity. You know, they were living on company property. They were surrounded by a fence. They were packed 24 to a trailer. They were only allowed out with a chaperone. Um, they were um, on their way in and out of the camp. Their ID was checked. Um, you know, they were... Um, they were also facing atrocious conditions. Uh, you know, the, the company not only controlled their housing, but their bank accounts. Um, the cafeteria food was company provided and all that the company gave them uh, on certain time, at, on certain days was frozen rice. Um, there were no microwaves. The men would have to suck on the rice to warm it up enough to make it ingestible. Um, so these were some of the conditions, but it wasn't until I got to know the workers that I understood what the deeper indignities were. You know, the surface conditions were bad enough, but 
it was when I got to know the workers that I understood the deeper indignities that would be awful enough to have them join a real high stakes heist film style escape and then a freedom march um, that could have easily led to their deportation and or their incarceration. For example, Ebi Raju, the worker I talked about, you know, who, uh, who fell in love with his bride-to-be, had a son and then left. Um, in um, uh, in the U.S. one day, in, in the uh, in, in, you know at work for the company on his work site one day, he was up on a twenty foot high platform, doing a very dangerous welding job, and um, then he stopped because his phone rang. He pulled out his phone. He answered. It was his wife calling from India, from ten thousand miles away. She was just about to go into surgery. Well. Abby was startled. She wasn't due yet. She was going in early. Um, and then the phone died. And for the next few hours, Abby just sat there paralyzed, wondering what would happen to her and his son. Well, Abby's son was born that day. His wife was safe. The son was safe. But it was 10,000 miles away, and Abby wouldn't meet the son he had that day for the next three years because the company wasn't going to let him go home. Um, another character was a man uh, that everyone called Gyani. Um, this is a man who was of the Sikh religious faith. Um, his full name was Gyani Gur Gurbinder Singh. Gyani is an honorific. This man was a priest, but also a welder. Well, the company uh, ordered him to shave his beard. When he refused, uh, they threatened him with deportation. Well, he couldn't afford to be deported, just like Abby, because he had debts to violent moneylenders back home. Um, but he couldn't shave. It was, you know, it was a sin. But he didn't have access to lawyers or access to English to explain that. Um, and so he was forced to shave his beard that day and didn't send pictures of himself home to India for the next three years because he was too afraid for people to see him. And that's really, I think, at the heart of the book is uh, people who deeply want to be seen, seen as human beings, recognized for who they are, not just as workers, but as people. Um, and, and it wasn't until I understood those deep indignities that I was able to convince people to escape, because that, that deeper injustice was what got people, um, what got people to say, you know, this isn't this isn't right. We can bear physical discomfort, but not this level of moral indignity. Uh, and so they escaped. Yeah, no, it's really it's really amazing. And just the ways in which, um, you know, that that sort of control happens. It's it's quite remarkable. And you you really bring that out. Um, I um uh, I I loved the march, um, you know this 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 march for justice to the Department for Justice, as apparently some of them. <laughs> yeah, I loved that, um, and and I really I I so appreciated the way you kind of connected these struggles to larger human rights struggles that Black workers had faced in the South, and mm -hmm. and some of the. Um, campaigns that they had run. And I thought that was so interesting how you had some 
Black organizers talk to them at different points and talk about what their experience had been and 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 talk about sort of what you were trying doing there and trying to accomplish a little bit. That was just really, you know, how did how did it's not obvious, right, that sort of um, that these, you know, that these Indian men are going to see um, lessons that they should keep in mind from the experience of black workers. But talk about talk about how you how you made that connection. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when the men were in the labor camp, um, in these trailers surrounded by barbed wire fences, um, one of the tactics of company officials to keep them confined was to tell them that if they ever left the labor camp, they would have to fear a couple of things. Firstly, police might pick them up or immigration agents might pick them up, but also that outside um, there were all these people out of work. They used all this racially coded language, you know, um, black workers outside or African-Americans outside um, who would attack them. So the company really played on, um, on racial, um, not fears really. I mean, the men didn't arrive in the United States fearing anybody, um, but the company played on, um, you know, uh, racial um, um, kind of uh, tactics as old as America to sort of keep these workers confined. When I met them, you know, I partnered with um, one worker in particular um, who taught me about the company, taught me about the um, uh, the pressures on the men. And he and I, this man Rajan and I, engineered the great escape right at the center of the book. But almost as soon as they were out, you know, the men started to meet people other than me. Um, and and in particular, they started to meet all of my mentors who I brought in. When I moved to post-Katrina New Orleans, I was lucky enough to meet some of my heroes, you know, people who had been um, Black freedom uh, fighters in the South, SNCC activists, students of Ella Baker, uh, people who had been on the freedom rides, and people who had done the sit-downs, you know, across the South. These were people who had nurtured me, who had welcomed me, and now they welcomed the workers. And it was really interesting to get um, not just that kind of welcome, but that kind of analysis of here's what you're stepping into. You're not just stepping out of a labor camp into the rest of the United States of America. You're stepping into a lineage because before you came all of these people who had a fight in them and they made the way for you. And so there was a, um, an organizer in New Orleans, a very, very um, uh, you know, uh, close friend uh, and mentor of mine named Ted Quant. Uh, he had been the first African-American shop steward in a sugar cane, in a, in a, a very legendary sugarcane uh, factory in Louisiana. Um, he was the shop steward for what later became UFCW. And, you know, he was among the first to address the men and he gave them str strength for the great escape. Um, the next thing that happened, another, another way in which black organizers were so important was that they provided the men not just with strength and inspiration, but with an analysis. 
And one of the things that happened at the march on the march to Washington, we we set out from New Orleans on a march very much like in the spirit of Gandhi all the way to Washington. And at first the men's spirits were just strong, you know. Um they were marching through New Orleans and you know at some point there was even a a, a trombone player coming home from a gig who played for us when the saints go marching by and you know the march kind of turned into a second line but things became a lot bleaker as we left new orleans and and walked through stretches of georgia and mississippi and alabama um cars would drive by and people would pelt bottles onto us you know that was even fine that that you know gave men a fortitude because it was an adversary they could understand but then about halfway into the march we found ourselves surveilled we thought that the person surveilling us was, you know, your garden variety white supremacist. It turned out after a high-speed chase that led to a camouflage truck, it turned out he was a government agent. And we didn't know it at the end, but what we uncovered was that deep inside the federal government, there were agents with corrupt ties to the company who wanted, uh, you know, to unravel our plans. Well, we were heading into North Carolina and in Greensboro, we met with Reverend Nelson Johnson. Um, he is a legendary organizer um, and he gave us his own story, which was a story about you know, going up against a racial caste system protected by the government. Um, and that was, really, um, that was really important because uh, you know, from these kinds of organizers, the men learned not just what it takes to fight a company uh, that they were prepared for, but like you said, the men thought arriving in Washington was tantamount to victory. In their particular English, they called uh, the they called it the Department for Justice, and they would say, "Well, it's right there in the name." And people like Reverend Johnson helped them understand it would take a long fight to win from the federal government. That that turned out to be true. Um, but it, but we would never have understood that as deeply as as the men wound up doing if it weren't for um, this group of African American organizers of a certain generation, you know, who um, who gave us these lessons. Yeah, no, I thought that was that story was just so powerful, and it was so, um, uh, you know, just really um, interesting how they sort of saw themselves as this you know, like, I love the way you say it there, that they're part of a lineage, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and sort of connected them to that, um, to that struggle. Um, like many immigrants, they had more faith in American institutions than most American born people, right? <laughs> and, and, and that's where they started. They were really angry at the company. They, they understood the recruiters as adversaries, but they thought the government would provide and I think it took that analysis from Southern African-American organizers uh, to, to, to explain to them, well, it would still be a fight. Yeah, I wanted to ask this question um, we have from uh, from Grace who asks, uh, you know, that she works in rural community development and, um, you know, to this question of recognizing these issues happening in your community, what are some of the things that local communities and community development professionals can do to prevent or recognize forced labor 
Are there policies and practices that can be put in place or just, you know, what advice would you have to people who are in communities, you know, so that they could, could see this? Like, well, I, I think the, the most important thing is, you know, building, um, building a set of conditions for immigrant workers um, that is normal long before anything rises to the extent of forced labor. Because what happened in this company is, you know, these workers were just the logical extreme of what happens when there are no standards in place. And particularly immigrant workers and undocumented immigrant workers because they're so afraid to come forward and report abuse because they're worried about being punished with deportation. Um, you know, we need to make, take a special, take specially, uh, take special care that undocumented workers um, have these kinds of protections. So I would say, you know, if you're a, um, you know, if you're a local activist or a local community development organization, you lead um, a group somewhere, um, the best thing you can do is approach the local community, uh, the local immigrant rights coalition or worker center in your community. Uh, maybe you live in a place where there are a lot of poultry plants. Maybe you live in farm country, or maybe you live in an American city with a deep professional urban population that depends on domestic workers. Well, these workers have their nonprofit labor rights groups, and we can all contribute to strengthen those labor rights groups. Um, you know, um, I think the other thing is that, you know, at a cultural level, um, we all need to be telling our own immigrant stories so that we start to recognize the presence of immigrants uh, in our communities. I think this is where, um, this is where it helps that, um, you know, the stories are circulating so that the only stories that pop up are not the bad ones. Um, and then I think, you know, I think that um, in a lot of places across the U.S., uh, there are highly brave and visible workers in motion. You know, um, a lot of fast food workers are immigrant workers. Um, there are farm worker campaigns across the country, domestic workers across the country who are organizing. Um, you know, uh, one of the most courageous groups of workers uh, that's out there campaigning for their rights um, is restaurant workers. We all go to restaurants and, you know, restaurant workers have their organization. So, you know, uh, Rock and NDWA and Endelon, I mean, these are the groups that, that really support workers locally and wherever you are, uh, you can be part of their ability and their capacity, their infrastructure. Um, and I'd be remiss to say, uh, you know, my own organization, Resilience Force is one of these groups, right? And and we particularly protect the workers who rebuild after disasters. And so if you live in a place that's been flooded or fire prone, um, likely there are workers toiling away in awful conditions to fix homes in your neighborhood, you know, or schools in your school district. Um, so just look out for these workers and contact those groups. Yeah, that's great, Sakit. And and I and I will also say, you know, we've we've profiled a lot of organizations, yours and others, um, and have resources on our website. So again, you know, if you think about it in that sector way, if those are the places like the um that you're seeing, you're concerned about where immigrant workers might be, um, 
um, Magalie Licoli is another one we've worked with. So um, with with poultry workers. So um, so anyway, just that's, you know, that's a, you know that's such a great example, right? I mean, you'd never think about about it, but you know, even in rural America, immigrant workers are organized and have their groups, but they need support and help. And Magali is an excellent example uh, of of an organizer like that. Yeah, thank you for pronouncing things correctly. By the way, I'm realizing I had like been saying the names wrong in my head of half the characters in your oh, book. Oh, no, anyway. no problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I just, just to, just to put this in perspective, I'm from North India. Many of the workers are from South India, so it was a real learning for me uh, in in communicating with them. We had to get over our own language barriers. Um, so, you know, there just isn't a homogenous <laughs> group, um, even in this book. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it was so fascinating to sort of like uh, the, the sort of, you know, I think at one point they were telling you, you had to get all the North Indians to sort of join something because they're your people and sort of, and, and this way that people, you know, sort of identity and who's responsible for whom and everything and how that kind of is one of the puzzle pieces I think that you have to work with when you're trying to, you know, sort of build across different sort of, um, uh, you know, just sort of how people think about who they are in this. Um, and I'm I'm wondering if the experience kind of uh, changed how you how you approach organizing in any way or or how you think about helping people find this their common cause. Oh, it absolutely did. It was it it profoundly changed how I see organizing. You know, um, I mean, one way it changed how I organize is dramatized in the book in an intimate way. Um, you know, I had to be, um, you know, when I met these workers, um, you know, I. I was my 29-year-old self, you know, um, my hair was a mess, you know, I was wearing uh, probably a hoodie and jeans, and I was, as you said, a theater major, you know, what the workers wanted was a Harvard-educated lawyer who carried a briefcase and wore a suit, so when I arrived in front of them, they sent, they said, you know, you're the one who they sent to help us? Who, who's your boss? Go, go bring the guy you work for, you know? And I really had to win these workers over. I had to demonstrate my efficacy. But at key moments, I had to also share my own story with them. And, um, you know, this is a delicate thing for an organizer. Some organizers really worry about whether to share their own personal story at all. Other organizers tend to share their entire life story in on the first day they meet somebody leaving you know leaving their uh, member the poultry worker or or the, the pastor they're organizing really puzzled i mean why am i hearing about all of this you know um and in the book i really dole out my story in really short um you know interstitial chapters exactly the way i had to during the campaign at key pivotal moments to make people trust me and I really learned a lot about um, how deep that trust runs and also how fragile it can be under the pressures of a campaign um, in very, very heartbreaking ways. Again, not to give it away, but there's a character in the book who becomes, you know, 
the brother I never had through the course of the book. Um, we create this crazy great escape in the middle of the book that's out of a, just an insane movie. Uh, and we bond over that. Then we bond over our parallels and our stories. But at the end, he doesn't survive the pressures of the campaign. Our friendship and our bond break under the under the pressure of ICE agents hunting us down. Um, so I also learned how heartbreaking um, organizing can be, and and uh, and that just continues to be true. But but building friendships, sharing about yourself, and maintaining bonds is part of what you take on when you you know when you become an organizer. Yeah, I also was struck in in um, how your your cooking skills got to improve as well, and how much food was part of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah, uh, you know, honestly, I, I was I was looking for the cookbook version of this book by the end. So, well, well, there is a recipe in the book, um, you <laughs> know, deep in the book. But um, you know, I you know when I met these workers, I couldn't boil an egg. Um, but Rajan, this worker, he he one of the things he did was teach me how to cook. We would meet secretly. And I would smuggle him ingredients. He would carry these Indian ingredients into the labor camp. And he commandeered the kitchen and, and cooked Indian meals. That's how he revived the men from their catatonic state in the labor camp uh, and then ferried them out under the pretext of a fictitious wedding. Um, and that's how I convinced them. It was all around meals. Um, and so I also learned that food uh, is, a, is a really critical organizing tool, especially in immigrant communities. Yeah, no, that was that was really that was really great. I'll I'll look for more than the than the fish curry recipe from you though. <laughs> yes, yes, I I promise you those. I'll I'll cook for you one day, Maureen. All right, um, <laughs> that, I, I'll hold you to that. Um, uh, so you know, I I wanted to get back to this this story, um, uh, of Reverend Johnson's story, right? Because um, one of the things that really struck me in his story, and it was so moving, um was, you know, and, and I mentioned this at the beginning, right? Like I, I, it, the work of an organizer is surprisingly dangerous and there are real risks and it doesn't always work out. Um, and this story took a long time to work, right? Like it, it you know, the it looked like it might not work at, at first, right? So, um, and, you know, we hear about um, campaigns and the successes, right? And we, sort of, you know, valorize that and, and, uh, but we don't really learn about the ones that, you know, kind of end in loss and tragedy um, and injustice. Um, so you've closed the book with this sort of lovely tendon, this lovely reflection on what we remember and what we forget. Um, and so I was just, I, I, I really appreciated that. And, and I, and I'm, and I'm wondering, um, you know, what you want people to most remember from, from this book um, and how you think about that, just that, that, that remembering and forgetting process. Well, um, yeah, you started with Reverend Johnson and, um, you know, at a critical moment in the book, he not only tells the workers how he led efforts, you know, really dangerous efforts for racial justice um, in North Carolina, um, but as I'm leaving the church, he also gives me advice. I'm, you know, rushing off to the next stop on the march, and he pulls me back a little, and he says, listen, um, are you prepared for loss, you know, and 
um, I, I just freeze in my tracks. I've never considered it. And he asks me to consider uh, that we may not win and that after we don't win, if that's the outcome, I still have to live with myself. Um, and I know he's saying that to me because he lost at the moment where he was having the greatest fight of his life with white supremacists um, in North Carolina. Um, he and his compatriots leading this brave fight uh, lost, um, not only lost, you know, in, in real life, but then lost in memory. The courts, uh, the official record in the press deemed them the criminals, you know, instead of the Nazis, uh, the, the self-proclaimed Nazis who they were fighting in North Carolina um, and the white supremacists they were fighting uh, in North Carolina. And, and uh, Reverend Johnson went through uh, a period of deep, deep, um, you know, indignity and 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 ostracization uh, in civil society in in respectable circles in Greensboro where he lives and so he was sort of giving me a, a glimpse of that and I had never considered it I I hadn't ever wanted to confront the possibility of defeat and let alone what that would mean for the men personally and me personally um, I'm glad he did and the books call at the end to remember is woven into that, that, um, you know, we all have to remember that the victories and the losses make us the people we are. Um, and then there's a me there's memory at a different time, the reason that, at a different level, I mean, the reason that um, we have so many repeated um, histories of holding workers captive in America, um, the reason this is a tale as old as America is because we tend to forget each time. You know, we, we, we tend to forget that um, there was an indentured labor program after the end of slavery. Uh, there was a Bracero program after that, uh, you know, much of which is replicated in the temporary worker program. So rather than making a call for policy, um, I'm making a call at the end for remembering and a kind of moral memory uh, that would guide us in how we seek to treat workers, um, not just migrant workers, but all workers in the United States. Yeah, and, and maybe even beyond, I appreciate this question we had about, you know, how these stories compare to the migrant workers in Qatar. Um, you know, we had the sort of issues around the World Cup and all that. And, you know, and, and many of the workers, as you mentioned, as, as you describe in the book, you know, they have a long history of working in other places before they came to New Orleans. And I guess I'm just wondering, you know, how would you, how would you suggest people, you know, think about beyond the U.S., right? And, and, um, and think about sort of that, that those stories. Well, there's one uh, remarkable worker in the book, and um, at a certain moment early in the book, he sneaks out of his labor camp to meet with me secretly. And at the end of this meeting, he asks me this question that's always stayed with me. Um, he was a migrant worker across the Middle East, where they, you know, they confiscate your passport, and you're you're sleeping and working on company property. Um, but even after going through all of that in the Middle East, um, you know, he he comes to the United States and he asks me this question as, as we're just ending our first meeting in his particular English. He says, 
how to get free in America. And what he means by that is there's a procedure in the Middle East, you know, to leave your company and work for a different company or to get a furlough and go home and see your kids. But things are much worse in Mississippi. You can't leave your employer under the temporary worker program. You can't go home. So he's asking a very technical question. Is, the, is there a form? Is there a procedure? Is there an office? But it occurred to me that the question he asked, how do you get free in America, is really the age-old question for every labor organizer. And we're still asking it. How do you get free in America? And, and, and to him, things were worse in Mississippi than they had been in the Middle East. And I think that's the thing we all have to reckon with. You know, we, we, it is the land of the free, and yet so many people working in the United States have less access to rights and, and, and narrower freedom of association um, than many across the world. And this really is a global fight for freedom. Yeah, I love that. That is a wonderful place. We are just about at the end of our time. Uh, holding up the book again, if I can. Here it is. Um, Puckett, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Do you have any final thought that you want to share? Well, I mean, I really expected you to ask, um, you know, what um, um, what the big differences between um, uh, North Indian and South Indian dal, you know, lentils. And <laughs> the secret is in the great escape at a certain moment, Rajan, <laughs> the, the great chef organizer reveals all. It has to do with cumin versus mustard. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you all read. I'm assuming you're going to make me a sample of these. I, I will. I'll I be will. able to have taste yes. test. <laughs> yes, there'll be a glorious meal. <laughs> Well, Saket, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been fabulous. We could go on longer, but I'm really not allowed to do that. Um, so really appreciate your time. And um, and thanks to everybody for joining us today. Um, um, please, again, do remember to give us a little comment before you leave. Um, I really want to thank my colleagues uh, who do such a fabulous job helping me uh, organize these events and, and do really all the work. Uh, Tony Mastria, Victoria Prince, Amanda Finns, Merritt Steuben, and Matt Helmer. Couldn't do it without them. Um, so uh, thanks for, to the audience for sharing your comments, questions, sharing your time with us today. Um, once again, I'm, I'm going to just really recommend the book. It's a great read. You'll be glad you read it. Um, uh, and uh, please take a moment to respond to our feedbacks. And please uh, join us again soon. We have more events coming up. So um, I hope you'll join us again. Thanks. Thank you all. <laughs>